in Matthew chapter 18. If you're in the Blue Pew Bible, it'll be on page uh, 823. 823. There's certain life skills, if you want to call it that, life skills that we need to know in order to live well in this world for Jesus uh, so that we can, we can live as those who are examples for Him. We can, we can live well. We can teach others, perhaps. We can shine His light into this world, uh, into the, this world that I'm reminded again and again is so desperately in need of hope. Uh, I mentioned in my prayer another, another shooting uh, that occurred yesterday, and, and one thing that's been interesting for me, I guess for our family, is that as this kind of unfolds, and we hear about this more and more often, it, it seems that it comes, comes home more to us more often. Before, uh, so a few weeks ago, it was the, 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 the school in uh, Nashville attached to a PCA church, and uh, certain connections there. This one Actually, if you saw anything about it, it was at a, a, a set of stores, outlet stores that are in Allen, Texas, where we used to live, and we've been to those stores many, many times, and uh, Amy saw uh, uh, that there were some people that we knew, that uh, one that was working at one of the stores, and, and things like that. It just seems to come home more and more, and, uh, the, and that's not the only thing that, that, that brings this to mind, but that we do live in a world that's desperately in need of hope. And you, you, you think about that. When there, there, there are people that are focused constantly on just the busyness of life, and then something enters in that causes them to think, what about when that life comes to an end? Uh, what does that mean? What's the purpose? Why, why am I here? All those questions come rushing in, and if there aren't answers there, what's left? Hopelessness. And so, uh, we have that one hope, the one true hope that the world so desperately needs. Uh, and so, as we go through these, uh, the, the things, the teaching of Jesus right now, uh, and as He brings out to His disciples, this is how you need to live. These are the, the, the life skills that you need in order to live for Him. Those are the things that we need in order for us to live for Him. Uh, and so that's what we've been looking at is, uh, uh, over the past several weeks as, as Jesus has begun this you know, kind of final march toward the cross. Uh, and, and we see that he's, he's preparing his disciples and he's building into them uh, even more so, I, I think, than he was before. A couple of weeks ago we saw he taught about faith, what faith really looks like, and uh, how prayer serves as a wonderful demonstration of faith. Uh, and then last week he used the, the topic that mo many of us here are very familiar with, taxes, uh, in order to teach about the importance of worshiping and serving God, not because we have to, but because we love Him out of a love for Him. And now Jesus is continuing throughout chapter 18, as we jump into chapter 18, the beginning of it, uh, he, he's, he's teaching his disciples about how to live as those who are part of the kingdom of God here upon the earth. You know, if this were, if this were a class in school, I think it might be called 
kingdom life skills. Wouldn't you like to take a class? Kingdom life skills. This is how to live in this world uh, and, and reflect the ways of the Lord Jesus in a world that uh, is in desperate need. And, and so as we go through chapter 18, one thing that you can expect is uh, that these things that we're learning will be very different from the classroom of this world. Very different. And you're going to see that in today's passage. So again, chapter 18, we'll just look at the first six verses. Uh, this is 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Please join me as we look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words this morning, these words that are intended to work upon our hearts, to work upon hearts that have been opened up, that have been enabled by Your Spirit for those who have trusted in Christ and therefore have the Holy Spirit at work. And so, Lord, we do pray that You will help us to be able to, to see and to understand these things that Jesus was teaching to His disciples. And we pray that You'll help us to see the importance of them in our lives today. We pray that uh, you'll help us to apply these things to our own hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, I think many here uh, know of C.S. Lewis. He's a writer and theologian uh, in, in Great Britain. He, he wrote a number of books. Uh, uh, probably his best well-known book is Mere Christianity. Uh, and uh, in it, he has a chapter that's called The Great Sin. Now, I'm going to read an excerpt for us uh, out of that chapter uh, because I think it's especially helpful in understanding this passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, he says, under this chapter entitled The Great Sin, he says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice, and at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. 
And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You know, C.S. Lewis is addressing a serious sin. He, he makes that clear here. He goes on uh, to call this the essential vice or central vice, the utmost evil, he says. And as he points out, it's a sin from which none of us are free. Now, there are other sins where uh, each of us may have and, and will have a, a particular propensity toward that that area, toward that sin, uh, it afflicts us in a greater way. Uh, pride is one, and, and we may have differences in how it shows itself in us, but pride is one that is there throughout. None of us are free from it. I'm sure you probably know people with whom uh, you, you've been close, maybe personally close, maybe as a family, uh, uh, but over time, pride whether it was on their part or on your part or both, drove a wedge of division between you. And, you know, I think that points out something that's always present, or almost always present when it comes to this sin. And that is comparison. Comparison and competition. You know, C.S. Lewis goes on uh, to say this. He says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud the pleasure of being above the rest. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, it's difficult to see in ourselves, but pride is always about being that one step better in comparison to others. And that's what's, that's what's going on in this passage that we're looking at this morning. The disciples are drawing comparisons with each other. And pride... Is, is driving a wedge of division between them. And you can kind of imagine, if you've been here and you know uh, what happened back in chapter 17, you can kind of imagine how this might have taken place. Remember, Jesus took three disciples up on the mount that we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and remember, things happened up there. Amazing things happened. Then they came down from the mountain. Now, what question do you think the other disciples would immediately be wanting to ask the three that came back. What did y'all do up there? What happened? And their answer, based on what Jesus told them, their answer, I'm sorry, we can't tell you. We're not at liberty to share that with you. That's really for the three of us and Jesus who were up there. Uh, and so you've got this situation in which this close circle uh, of Jesus has, has, has been given, in a sense, some privileges. Uh, and then the other nine who haven't received this special treatment, they weren't 
asked to go. So, is there any question about who the greatest is amongst the disciples? Now, this is a perfect setup uh, for comparisons to take place. And you can just imagine them uh, back and forth, kind of arguing about this for themselves, uh, kind of like children, until they finally they, 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 they take their argument to Jesus and say, help us to settle this. And they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what we've got here is a picture of what pride looks like. And uh, the, the effects of it uh, as well. And uh, so the Lord is going to help them to settle this. And He uses it as an opportunity to teach them. Now, unfortunately, what we see here amongst the disciples is not limited to them. Uh, but it's, it's very present among us as well and has been over the past 2,000 years and before that as well. Pride is that which is in the heart of man. Uh, and it has certain characteristics and we need to be able to see that and understand it. Uh, and that's what this is about. Now in this, this chapter that C.S. Lewis wrote, he, he gives us a, uh, a test to help us to be able to see pride in ourselves. Now there are many different kinds of pride. This doesn't point out all the kinds. Uh, but here's, here's what he says. And you can ask yourself this. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me? Or when they refuse to take notice of me, maybe when they, they look down upon me or even show off in front of me. You can ask yourself, is that something that, that I've seen that causes problems for me? Uh, something maybe that makes me upset, that makes me angry, makes me want to strike out. Uh, it, he, he's pointing to pride here within. And, and one more observation that C.S. Lewis makes. He says that each person's pride, this is the way pride works, each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. That we've got this need inside of us for validation uh, to somehow sense in comparison to others that not only am I okay, but I'm a little bit better. I'm, I'm, I'm better off. I'm greater. Uh, this is true of Jesus' disciples. And this is often true of us as well. It's pride. And it brings about division between people. And it really is subtle. Uh, and if we know it well, we are able to see, perhaps in ourselves, that we're really good at justifying it and at remaining blind to it. You know, people often talk about pride in a way in which it's a good thing, or it makes it sound like a good thing. Uh, somebody can be proud of their heritage. Uh, that means they've got a, a background, uh, a, a lineage that is somehow different. It's distinct. It stands out. Maybe it's somehow superior to others. Uh, we hear about other things like pride parades. And here the word is being used to say, there is no shame in that. Uh, we're going to openly celebrate this. 
And again, what's being communicated is, in this word pride, there's something good there. It's, it's not bad. But the Bible never uses the word pride in a good way. Never uses it in a good way. Uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. And we can go to so many passages. Here's out of James chapter 4. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, that's what Jesus is teaching here. He wants us to be able to see this in ourselves, to be able to see pride, to know it's important to, to bring it out and to be intentional in addressing it, uh, in, in, in putting it to death. Uh, he, he wants us to see when we begin to make comparisons ourselves with others, and it could be about anything. It could be about looks or abilities or uh, finances or uh, the car we drive, or popularity, uh, or what we're able to, to know. Uh, the list is endless. But he wants us to be able to see it and to call it out for what it really is, that it's pride. Uh, and, and he wants us to hate it because he wants us to recognize that this is completely opposite to the Lord, to who God is and to what He desires. And that's really at the heart of it for us, isn't it? Because God is good. He is good. He's the definition of good. And out of His goodness flows a love. A love that is unlike any other love in this world. Uh, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a place that describes that love. Uh, but it describes it in a certain way because it's talking about us. Because God has designed for us to have that same love, that love that's so different from the love that is present in the world. First uh, Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Think about how different that is from the love of the world. The love of the world that says, that lifts up me. Uh, and it's about self-love and taking care of this first. This is the other way around. This is a, a sacrificial love that, that looks outward. It's not looking inward. Uh, it looks outward. That's what Jesus' disciples were missing. And that's what we are so often missing. And Jesus wants us to see our own pride and to correct it so that we live as those who are part of the kingdom of God, of His kingdom, and not living out of the ways of this world. And He's saying this is important. And so as we look at this passage this morning, notice two ways that Jesus confronts and corrects pride with people. One of those, Jesus gives... Correction for evaluating ourselves with respect to pride. And secondly, Jesus gives responsibility for caring for others. So first, correction for evaluating ourselves, and then he gives responsibility for caring for others. So first, uh, Jesus gives correction for evaluating 
ourselves and our own pride. You know, it's amazing how blind we can be in this area of pride. I'm sure you probably know and can think of examples of how easy it is to spot pride in others, isn't it? Uh, Sometimes it's just plain, like, like looking at your hand, you can see that pride, but But guess what? Even as you're looking at pride in others, if you only knew your own blindness to pride in yourself, uh, there's a blindness there. And so we need the Lord to shine a light upon that sin to give us an understanding of of what's what's really there and, and what it really means to be great in this world. Because that's what pride does, doesn't it? It, it, it? It calls for us to be greater than others in some way. But what does it really mean to be great in this world? That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, when the disciples come to Jesus with their bold question, and it is bold, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They've been bickering among themselves. Uh, What Jesus does is rather interesting. He calls a child to himself, and he sets that child in the middle of them. Now, whenever Jesus does this, and he does it a number of times in his ministry, and he, he, he calls children or a child to him, uh, he's always doing it in order to make a point, in order to, uh, to, with the children that are there, describe what needs to be known. He's bringing out some characteristic that is true or that we find with children. And then he'll say something like, be like this. That's what he does here. So think about, a, think about a child by nature. What is a child like by nature, especially a young one? A child represents, in a sense, the least among us. Uh, a child is completely dependent upon others. There's no question about that. And usually there's nothing grand there uh, about a child. No life accomplishments uh, to look back to, no great possessions uh, to look to now, no particular skills. Uh, so he's not needing to impress anyone. He's not needing to be built up or admired. And you know what? Usually the child is perfectly okay with that because there's none of that there because of who he is. Uh, and Jesus is telling his disciples, That is who you must become. He he says that's what true greatness looks like when it comes to kingdom living. That you must become like the least of these. And so he gives them direction. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, truly I say to you. He's saying "This this is important. Listen up. Unless you turn... And become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this this is a fundamental characteristic of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. If you don't have this characteristic, not perfectly, but if you don't possess this characteristic, you're not a part of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This is fundamental. And, And so he's saying that recognition is needed of what this sin is, and repentance is needed. And I think there, in a subcontext, is constantly uh, is needed. 
imagine for a moment that you're part of a group of, of people, uh, and uh, these people gather together periodically, work closely together on some project, and, and, and you've got a lot of background experience uh, that you can apply and knowledge, your education feeds into it, you've got skills that are there to go along with it. But imagine that there's chatter that begins to take place over email about some particular thing that the, that the group is working on, some particular direction that they're taking, and so you provide your input. You put together a long email, and, and you put in there uh, your uh, direction for the group. And this is, this is what we need to do. This is how, where we need to go with this. And then you wait, and you don't hear anything back over email, and and then the chatter continues, but it's almost like you, you never provided input at all. And then, and then say somebody comes to you, comes alongside of you, one of the group, and they say, you know what, we're, we, we've decided a certain direction, we're going in with this, and, and we really don't need your ideas right now. question is, how would you react? How would you handle that? Uh, this is something that probably all of us have experienced in different ways uh, a feeling that you're not valued, that you're not accepted. You, you may know what they need, but they're not receiving that input from you. And so how do you react? Do you react with anger? Do you strike out at someone in particular in the group? Do you distance yourself from them? You know, that's what Jesus is dealing with here. He's saying that those who are great or greatest are not those with the most accomplishments. They're not those who have achieved the greatest status. None of that lifts you up in God's eyes. No, the very greatest are those who are the least among these. The ones who know that they really have nothing at all to stand upon. Think about the child that doesn't need to depend upon what they've done uh, doesn't need any kind of status they've achieved. None of that means anything. But instead, their entire dependence and their entire well-being is not found in themselves at all. But it's found in the one who has loved them. Now, Jesus says here that to live part as a part of this kingdom, He says you must turn and become like children. He's saying you must place your dependence, your entire dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and, and relinquish all else. And he is talking about a process there. Not something that happens immediately, but something that must be at work, that must be ongoing, where we're recognizing these things in ourselves and, and able to call it out as pride. That's pride there. And then there's a work that's going on to put it to death. Now the beauty in all this is that Jesus not only commands this of us, but He also Himself went before us and He showed the way. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And as I read this, think about what we said earlier about love about that, that love of God that we are to manifest ourselves. Remember that love doesn't envy? 
doesn't boast, it doesn't insist on its own way, but rather it does the opposite, this kind of love. Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He had all the glory of God, because he is God, and yet he emptied himself, taking on the form of of a servant, that word means slave, humbling himself to the point of dying upon a cross. All for you. All for me. This is how much we've been loved by God. And the question comes up, what need do we have, therefore, to stand upon our own accomplishments? to stand upon our own achievements, to look to what we've done, been, and lift those up. And the answer is, now if you haven't received Christ, if you don't know this love, the answer is, there's no hope there. You've got a great need. But once you've received this gift of grace, this gift that God gives freely to all, once you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you lack nothing. And so here Jesus is calling for us to turn and to recognize pride in ourselves, to call it out, and to begin to deal with it by humbling yourself like a child as we look to what the Lord Jesus has done for us. He's the example. He went before us. And He's the one that made the way for us to follow so He calls us to become completely dependent upon Him, Him who has given us all. And you see how, as we do this, this drives out pride. And it's right here that you find true greatness. True greatness. So first, Jesus gives correction for evaluating ourselves. Secondly, Jesus gives us responsibility here for caring for others. And so, so that first encouragement that we got was to become like a, like a child, uh, humbling ourselves and, and recognizing that sin, putting it to death, uh, that, that sin that so often is there in the form of comparing ourselves to others. But when that takes place, when that's in the process of taking place, we'll be ready for this next item which doesn't involve just us but it involves us in relation to others. This, this next one is talking about the group. It's talking about the church. Uh, do we have that kind of love for others? Uh, if you look at verse 5, Jesus says to His disciples in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. Now the word receive there is being used in the sense of of welcoming in, uh, accepting them, caring for them. And uh, 
and, and it's speaking about others in the community of, of faith. I'll just say that word receive is the opposite of, and this is important, it's the opposite of dismissing or ignoring or avoiding. But also look at who we are to accept. He says, one such child, uh, remember who the child represents. When Jesus brought the child in, set the child amongst them, uh, it does, the child does represent believers. But especially the child represents the least of these. And if you really take this to heart, if you really look at what he's saying here, I, I think this is something that, that, that really, and I know this is true of other uh, uh, examples, teachings of Jesus, but that really sets this kingdom community that we call the church apart from every other community in the world. It should be drastically different from the world. The instruction here is to receive others who are in the faith, to welcome them, to, to bring them in, and especially those who are the, the, the least important, perhaps. And then he says to do it in my name, in Jesus' name. What that means is to welcome them as Jesus Himself, as if we were bringing in, as if we were welcoming the Lord Jesus Himself. In other words, that we must treat the least among us as we might treat Christ Himself. Now, one way of looking at this, I think that's helpful, is that we look at the first four verses there. Uh, they're, they're talking about dealing with this sin inside of us, a very difficult sin, pride, uh, but but the need to recognize it, to put it to death, to deal with this sin internally. But the next two, next two verses, verses 5 and 6, really serve as a practical test of this, this practice of, of humbling ourselves. Of, you know, it, it, is it working within us? And this test is not just some outward show of acceptance. That's worth noting because we're very good with outward shows. But no, this is talking about genuine, uh, a genuine heart to care about and to receive others. Listen to these words of the Lord Jesus once again. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You know, what, what I think this cautions us against is taking our involvement in, in the church, in this community of faith, too lightly. Uh, because when we really pay attention to what Jesus is saying here, we should come away uh, convinced and, and convicted that how we treat one another, and especially those who, who we might otherwise, or who the world might, might not treat uh, in, a, in a, a special way, might otherwise reject, but that this is no small thing. And if you look at verse uh, 6, I think we see Jesus really driving this point home that, uh, that this is no small thing. Take this to heart. Verse 6, he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Now, I don't think I need to explain that too much further. Uh, I think that's pretty descriptive. I will say a millstone was one of those things. You got a donkey 
uh, walking around in a circle with a, a pole that runs to the great big millstone that's uh, crunching the grain between two stones. It was not light, and if you had one of those tied to you, I don't care how good of a swimmer you are, you're going to go down to the bottom. So we know what Jesus is saying here. Uh, but what's he talking about? Jesus is talking here about how important it is to guard over and to protect those who are the least among us. Those who we might say are the most vulnerable. Uh, you know, we, we know what it's like in this world in which we live. Uh, for those who are vulnerable, those who face the greatest risk of being taken in and, and, and taken advantage of, that that's what the world majors in. But here we're told the opposite to guard over, to protect uh, those who are the most vulnerable. It might be, uh, some see this as, as children, and certainly I, I would think it includes that, uh, but also those who might be young in the faith. Uh, also, uh, women in certain vulnerable situations, and you could uh, go on and extrapolate out. But those who are vulnerable in some way, and especially protecting them from that which the world would engage them in from continuing in a, a, a life or, or experiencing sin apart from Christ. These are the sheep, if you think, it, think about it this way, these are the sheep that Jesus is especially concerned about. And, and we do see that every single one of the sheep Jesus is concerned about. What a great feeling. But He especially brings out those who are in need, those who are downtrodden, uh, those who we need to, to, to treat in a special way. And he says, you, believers, you who are in the community, you have a special responsibility to look out for them. Now, pride would say, no, no. I need to take care of myself. I, I need to watch out for myself and those who are mine. But Jesus gives us the responsibility of going beyond that uh, and caring for others within the community, seeking to protect them, to care for them, those who are the least of these. And you know, what he's showing here is though, that those who have become the least of these, uh, remember, that's what he, he said in the first four verses when he took a child, he set the child in, in the middle of them, and, and he told them to become like children. Uh, so those who are Becoming and who have become like the least of these with humble hearts are especially well equipped to come alongside of others and to care for those who are the most vulnerable uh, because we have had and we are having that, that sin of pride dealt with within us. Uh, and so we're able to do that which the world can't do. And we're able to reach out and, and to care for and truly accept and bring in, uh, and, and, and lead, perhaps, in some cases, or, or guide those who are the most vulnerable, who are the least. And if this is really happening, if this is really taking place, think about what an effect it, it, it should begin to have upon our witness to the world around us. You know, it, it makes way for the gospel of grace to be heard by a needy world. And it shines that light of hope. There is hope in this world. And again, 
think about it. Isn't this exactly what the Lord Jesus has done for us, right? He took us, we who were dead in our sins and trespasses. Uh, We were against Him. We were on the outside. We were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in this world. And He, the very Son of God, humbled Himself, taking on the form of a servant, And while we were still sinners, while we were still rebellious against Him, Christ died for us. Think about it. What love, what mercy, what grace has been shed upon us. And now, what He's saying in this passage is, you, because I provided for you to do this, you take up your cross and follow Me. Die to self, live for Christ, follow Me, Give of yourselves. And he, and he says, first, you've got to deal with, with yourself inside. There's no other way. You've got to do this intentionally. You've got to be able to spot pride within yourself. And you've got to look to Christ and, and take care of that pride that is there. Remember, it's there with every person. You're not exempt. But then as you're taking care of that, then think about those around you and how you reach out to them, how you show that love, the love of Christ, that love, that mercy that's been shown to you, how do you show that to others? And all of a sudden, as you do that, uh, you begin to live like those who are in the kingdom, as does the community of faith, uh, a people who are looking to Him. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You that not only do You call us to these things, which if we uh, look and know something about our, our own hearts and something about pride and what it's really like, we know it's difficult. We know it's uh, extremely difficult that it takes us in, yet thank You that You not only call us to this, but that You provide for it step after step after step. Uh, we thank You for the Lord Jesus. We thank You for, for all that uh, has been provided for us in Christ, and we thank you that as we look to Christ, that our desires are more and more changed, and, and our hearts are more and more drawn to you, and this becomes more and more the pattern of our lives. It becomes easier, in a sense, for us to follow in this way. Help us, Lord, we pray, to, to walk that walk day after day, to look to Christ Uh, to walk in His footsteps, looking to Him as our example, loving You out of the same love with which we have been shown. We pray for Your help in Christ's name. Amen.